Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Our scripture text this morning is Mark 14, verses 43 to 52. And I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's holy word today. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him once and said, at once, and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out uh, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The sentence the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, in our, our text this morning, we come, obviously, to the account of the betrayal and the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back uh, earlier in the chapter, in verse 18, uh, Jesus had foretold that one of the twelve would betray him. Not just that he'd be betrayed, uh, but that one of the twelve disciples uh, would betray him. And here in our text, we see that Judas Iscariot, uh, notice Mark once again identifies him as one of the twelve. We see Judas doing just that, betraying his Lord uh, with a kiss. Uh, Mark tells us, uh, kind of, a, this might seem odd to us if we're not familiar with the text already, that Judas came with a crowd, you know, a large group of, of people. And this, this crowd was more like a mob or a small uh, army. This crowd was armed, he says, with swords and clubs. You now, if you were to put that into our context, in our day and age, they would have been armed with guns. Maybe rifles, shotguns, who, that, they, they came armed to the hilt. They came expecting the possibility of, of a fight. Now, that crowd of armed men wasn't just some random mob. It didn't just happen. Mark tells us what. He says they were sent by someone. And who, who does he say sent them? They were, quote, verse 43, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, what, what, what does that group represent? That was the Sanhedrin. That was the high court of Israel. This was an official mission, an official, uh, on official business on the authority of the Sanhedrin itself to go and arrest Jesus. Now, this was something, uh, try to liken it to something we can sort of identify with. Now, not that this is a modern day thing, but it's kind of like a posse in the Old West in some ways. They were officially deputized to go after a violent uh, criminal. You would, what would you do if you were the sheriff or the marshal? You would deputize uh, armed men to go after someone, a dangerous felon or an outlaw. Except in this case, they were coming to seize or arrest Jesus. The word seize shows up at least three times in the text. It's emphasized in our short text that they were going to seize, you know, physically, uh, violently grab and arrest Jesus by force. It's as if they didn't even bother to ask him if he'd come along with them quietly. They just came up to him armed and, and seized him 
physically. It's it's kind of a strange scene if you think about it. They're approaching Jesus as armed and dangerous. You know, if you were to be around town, if you were to see our sheriff's deputies or perhaps their, uh, it's, not, it's not called a SWAT unit, but kind of what their version of a SWAT unit is, you know, surrounding a house with with you know with weapons drawn, your first thought besides I'm going to get away from here as fast as I can would be, wonder what kind of person they're coming to arrest or what kind of person they're dealing with. They must be violent. Well, picture that surrounding Jesus, with with the, with eleven of his disciples. That's that's the picture here. They're coming, you know, arms armed to the teeth and aiming their weapons at him. And Jesus himself kind of points out how odd this is, doesn't he? In verse 48 and 49, this is what he says. Have you come out against, uh, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Of course, Jesus is kind of saying, you know, why, what's with the weapons? You know, why, why the armed uh, entourage? Why was he being treated as armed and dangerous? Did Jesus have a sword? We're going to see someone did, but Jesus certainly didn't. Had Jesus committed a crime? No. Was he a violent man? Do you read anything in the scriptures that suggests that Jesus was a violent person? He turned the tables over in the temple, but he didn't harm anyone in doing it. It's significant here that Jesus uses the word robber. He says, you're treating me. You know, are you coming out against me as against uh, a robber? Verse forty-eight. A robber. Now, remember this: the word robber here. It's not. It's not a petty thief. This isn't a robber. Isn't someone that goes you know, into the local convenience store and, and steals a pack of gum or steals twenty dollars. A robber was a violent person. A robber was a violent criminal who would attack his victims, sometimes laying in wait for them on the roadside. Uh, very often, they would kill their victims to get their possessions. Uh, such robbery was a capital offense in Jesus' day, uh, and so it, it warranted a death penalty. And how do we know that? Who was crucified next to Jesus? Same word is used. Two, two robbers, it says in Mark fifteen twenty seven. Then along with Christ, it says they quote, they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand, and one on his left. So Jesus picks that word for good reason. There, he's, he knows what they're treating him as, and he points it out. Ahead of time, this brings to mind the words of Isaiah 53, uh, verses 11 to 12. Part of this is printed on the front of your bulletins today. It says, uh, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Here it is. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Which he does from the cross, doesn't he? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, we saw last week in the Garden of Gethsemane passage, uh, the very first thing mentioned in that in verse 11 where it says, out of the anguish of his soul. We saw the anguish of Jesus' soul as the cross approached in the earlier passage in Mark 14. But it says here, he was poured, he poured out his soul to death, verse 12, and was numbered with the transgressors. The one person who never should have been numbered with transgressors did exactly that for our 
salvation. Isaiah talks about the, the knowledge of, of the righteous one. By his knowledge, the servant of the Lord would justify many. Why? For he would bear, carry their iniquities. Verse 11. Where, where did Christ carry the iniquities of many? On, on the cross, where he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Even here in his betrayal and arrest at the hands of, of Judas and the people with him, uh, Jesus was being numbered with transgressors. On the cross, he was numbered with two transgressors being treated like a violent criminal. All of that, the sinless Son of God endured for your salvation and mine, if you're a Christian here today. And Jesus exposes kind of the sheer cowardice of what they did as well and the hypocrisy of those same chief priests and scribes and elders. Because what does he do? He shows them. He shows them that he knew that they were afraid to arrest him out in the open. They did this the way they did it because they were afraid. They were afraid, as we saw, of the crowds, of the crowds possibly turning on them. And so they arrested him. They made arrangements with Judas to arrest him, not out in the open, but kind of off off the beaten path in the Garden of Gethsemane where the crowds would not be there uh, to see, instead of in the full view of the synagogues. Jesus was teaching. He says, I was with you, physically in your presence, teaching in the synagogues. What's the implication? If I was teaching blasphemy, if I I had been teaching heresy, why didn't you do something about it? Why didn't you come up to me in the middle of the whole sermon, so to speak, and say, stop the presses, and, and, and carry Jesus off right then and there? It's because they had nothing to say. Did Jesus ever teach heresy or blasphemy? No, he did not. Jesus always did the will of the Father, always taught the scriptures faithfully and truthfully, and they knew it. They knew he was innocent of all charges, and so they did his arrest the way that they that they did. Well, not only did Judas come with an armed mob to seize or arrest the Lord of glory, but he also had given them a sign, verse 44, or a signal, rather, uh, so they'd be able to recognize Jesus in order to know which one they were to arrest. He told them, verse 44, the one I, I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under under guard. And that's exactly what he did. He betrayed the Son of God, the Son of Man, uh, with with a kiss. In verse 45, Mark says, and, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he and he kissed him. Now this this is more than just a feigned show of respect, right? This is not just uh, him... Uh, trying to act uh, kind of respectful uh, despite what he was doing. He was mocking Jesus here. This is a mockery of, of Christ, and it's you know the saying that we often say is adding insult to injury. That's what he's doing here. This is someone from, from wickedness of heart doing what he did to Jesus knowingly. He positively made a, made a show of his betrayal of, of his Lord. He doesn't just address him as rabbi or, or teacher or like my teacher. Teacher, the one who teaches and taught me, is what he's acknowledging. Uh, and not only that, but the word for kissed here. Now, he, he had arranged that signal before, but the word that Mark uses for kissed, it's, it's kind of not how English works, but it's a strengthened word, a strengthened form of the word kiss. Oftentimes in the Greek language, they would put a prefix before the word to kind of emphasize the word. You know, sometimes you might read the prefix and think, oh, that... You think of it as a preposition and try to read more into it than you should. But it's, he went up and he kissed him. He made a show of it. He made it, he did it emphatically is what he did. He did it for effect. He made a show and a mockery of his betrayal 
of Christ. Now, part of that is probably because he needed to be able to be seen from a distance, and it might have been dark at the time. But he did this uh, kind of dramatically what he did when he betrayed Christ. Now, how ironic is it, though, that our Lord Jesus Christ would be betrayed with a kiss, something normally that is a token of love and affection, instead is used as a weapon to send Jesus off to trial and the death of a cross. Make no mistake, Judas knew what was going to happen to Jesus. He knew Jesus wasn't going to get a slap on the wrist. He knew Jesus wasn't just going to go to jail. He knew Jesus was going to be killed because of his his actions and his cowardice and his betrayal. And it brings to mind our call to worship this morning, Psalm number 2, verses 11 to 12, where the psalmist says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then what does he say? Of course, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What does it mean to kiss the Son? We don't... Maybe you think of old, you know, gangster movies where you would kiss the ring, you know, vow your, your loyalty to him. But to kiss the son is to submit to his authority, to submit to his rule, his rightful authority and rule. It's also to express love and loyalty to him. That's what it means to kiss the son. And even in that psalm, in Psalm 2, the kings, not just commoners, not just guys like Judas, not just the fishermen like the disciples, like the rest, many of the twelve, In Psalm 2, kings and rulers of the earth are warned and also invited to kiss the son lest he be angry and they perish in the way. That's how great of a king Jesus is, the son of God and the Lord of glory is. If Judas had fully realized exactly who it was he was betraying and mocking, he would have trembled for fear at the mere thought of doing it rather than doing it. If the soldiers or the temple police, whoever these armed men were, had recognized Jesus for who he was and is, they never would have dared to lay hands upon him. Or they would have brought a much, much bigger army to do it. Well, that brings us to one thing that this text tells us about, and that's the identity of Christ. It's it's, it's very easy to lose sight of that in these kinds of texts, not remember who it is that this, that this stuff is happening to in the Scriptures, This text, I think, has a lot to say to us about the identity of Christ and the significance and the irony of this event of Christ's Passion Week, I think, is easily lost upon you and me if we don't keep in mind exactly who Jesus is during this, while this is all happening to him. He is the incarnate Son of God, and the Lord of glory is being treated this way, and he's being treated that way for our salvation, for our sakes. It kind of reminds me of a scene... Uh, some of you know I'm a little bit of a movie buff, um, and uh, I'm also a comic book nerd, so your pastor has many flaws. But back in uh, 2013, there was a Superman movie called Man of Steel. Maybe some of you have seen it once or twice. Well, in it, the villain, General Zod, also a Kryptonian with powers like Superman, he comes to the Earth, and he demands that the citizens of Earth hand over Kal-El. That's his Kryptonian name, Superman. He, he tells him to either hand over Kal-El to him, or he was going to destroy the planet. You've got two two choices, and one of them is not a good one. And so, what does Superman do? He agrees to to sort of be betrayed, in a sense, to be to be arrested. He agrees to be uh, to surrender to the United States military and to be handed over to General Zod in order to try to save uh, the Earth and everyone on it. Now, the soldiers, the, the United States Army, they don't really understand who he is yet. They see him flying. They know he can do some things. Uh, and so what do they do? They handcuff him. 
they handcuff Superman. And Superman lets them handcuff him. And they, they cart him off, uh, escort him off, uh, armed to the teeth, uh, to, uh, to be handed over to General Zob. Well, Lois Lane, the reporter, later sees the cuffs and looks at him kind of quizzically and says, you let them handcuff you? Like, why, why, it's such an odd thing to think of. And he replies with a smile, it wouldn't be much of a surrender if I resisted. And later on, he snaps the cuffs, but almost by accident, as if they were wet tissue paper, and shows the cuffs really didn't do anything to keep him uh, under, under wraps. And he tells the general in charge, you're scared of me because you can't control me. You don't, and you never will, but that doesn't mean I'm your enemy. Now, the general, what did the general mistakenly think? He had tanks and guns and handcuffs and all kinds of things. Who did the general think was in charge? The general thought the general was in charge. He thought the army gave him power over him, uh, but that's, that wasn't really true. Looks can be deceiving. Well, that's, in a sense, that's even more true in Jesus' case. It's even more true in his case. Uh, they, the people that were arresting Jesus despite all of their weapons, were they in control? Did they have the, the say over Jesus Christ, the Lord, of glory, they were not the ones in control, and it wasn't their strength or their weapons that allowed them to seize Jesus, but rather the fact that he himself allowed them to do so. He let them take him. He didn't have to let them take him. Now, I'm, don't misunderstand my illustration. Don't take it too far. Jesus is not Superman. His humanity is very real. Jesus, you know, when, 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 the, when the evil one tempted him, back in the temptation to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, uh, Jesus didn't say, well, easy peasy and jump off and come to no harm. When, when the soldiers put the nails through his hands and feet, the nails didn't break. They didn't bend or snap. Jesus has a real human body and a rational, reasonable soul, just like us. He had to share in the flesh of, uh, and blood because the children, as, as Hebrews says, shared in flesh and blood. He came to redeem us, and he had to share in all that we are except for sin in order to do that. But how strange that these men could think that they could forcibly arrest and seize Jesus if he were not willing to be taken. How could they imagine that swords and clubs and crowds could possibly be sufficient to take him by force if it were not his father's will to send his son to be the redeemer of his elect and to save us from our sins by his death on the cross, if that were not the case, no army would have been large enough to take him. And Christ himself allowed himself to be taken because why? He was determined to carry out the will of his Father in going to the cross for our salvation, for the salvation of sinners. Well, how about the disciples? We saw that, that, that Judas and the soldiers had an odd view of Christ. Well, what about the disciples? They didn't really do a whole lot better. In the previous passage we looked at last time, we saw Jesus telling them that they were all going to fall away. Verse 27, when his hour came, they were all going to turn their backs on him, basically, and run. And not only will one of them betray him, but they were all going to tuck tail and run and abandon him in his darkest hour. Well, here we see the fulfillment of that in our text this morning. The disciples didn't think rightly of Jesus either. Look at verse 47, uh, an odd thing to think about, but it says, one of those who stood by, they didn't run right away, right? One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, high priest and cut off his ear. And you have to assume that 
this uh, disciple wasn't aiming for the ear. He was aiming somewhere in that general vicinity. Now, we know from Luke's gospel that the disciples had at least two swords with them. May have been more, but Luke 22, 36 to 38 tells us they had two swords with them. And in fact, in Luke 22, 36, Jesus goes so far as to tell his disciples to arm themselves. He physically tells them to arm themselves. He says, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In other words, it's better for you to be cold and armed than warm and dead. Buy a sword. Even if you have to get rid of your coat, go buy, go buy a sword. And so Jesus is not against self-defense. He's, you know, people sometimes try to use the Bible to teach all kinds of things it doesn't teach. Uh, the Bible does not uh, condemn self-defense. If anybody wants to try to use Jesus as kind of a wax nose to teach the disarmament of uh, people that need to defend themselves, they can't use Scripture here unless they're going to say that swords are okay and guns are not. You can have a sword for self-defense. Jesus says, go buy a sword if you don't have one. Defend yourselves. But what was Peter thinking here? We know from John chapter 18.10 that Peter's the one with the sword. Peter's the one that, that stood forward and tried to kill one of Jesus' captors and cut off the person's ear in trying to do it. But what was he thinking? He means well, right? He means better than we might have done if we had been there. He's trying to protect Jesus, which in a, in a weird way, it's an admirable thing. He means well when he does it uh, in some ways, but here we, I think we see that his view of Christ and Christ's kingdom wasn't much better than that of the soldiers, was it, at the time? He wasn't thinking the way he should... Did Jesus need Peter to defend him? Was Jesus some helpless damsel in distress tied to the train tracks? Was he not in control during this time? Did he need Peter to defend him? No. Was Peter, even more so, was Peter stronger than Jesus? Peter seemed to think he was. Peter seemed to think that Jesus needs me to protect him. He can't handle this on his own. Matthew 26, verses 52 to 54, it's a parallel account to this. Jesus says, put your sword back into its place, you know, sheath it, for all who take the sword will what? Perish, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so. Now, we don't have any concept of what 12 legions of angels would do, but let's just say that's a lot. That they would do serious damage. There would be nothing left of the spot. There would be maybe a, 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 you know, a burnt stain on the ground where those people had been if that was God's will. Jesus could have rained down fire from heaven or called upon his Father to send a multitude of angel armies to defend him and to inflict vengeance upon all of his enemies. But if he had done that, how could you and I be saved? We, we would not be able to be saved. We would still be in our sins if Jesus did not willingly lay down his life in our place. And what does he say there? How could the scriptures be fulfilled? The scriptures must be fulfilled, and especially the promise of the gospel as found in scripture must be fulfilled. And so the text this morning that we're looking at has something to tell us about the identity of Christ, but it also has something to teach us about the kingdom of Christ as well. Jesus' kingdom is not to be built or even defended by the sword. 
His kingdom is not a worldly kingdom, and so it cannot be built or defended by worldly means. What does Jesus tell Pontius Pilate in John 18? At his trial, John 18, 36, he says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't tell Pilate, I don't have a kingdom. He doesn't tell Pilate, I don't, I'm not a king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Worldly kingdoms, Peter had the right idea, if that's what Jesus' kingdom was. And Jesus says, that's not the way this is. That's not the kind of kingdom I have and am building in here in this in this life. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In other words, we think, I think sometimes we think that the weapons of our warfare are weak. They're, they're weaker than guns and swords and, and earthly, you know, power, power kind of things. Paul is saying you've got it backwards. They're more powerful. They're not visible. They're not worldly. They're not fleshly, but they're, they're powerful. They have divine, that's God's power, divine power to destroy strongholds. In other words, the forts of the enemy get destroyed, but not with swords. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ, of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's using an extended military analogy here. We're going in, kicking backsides and taking names. We're destroying strongholds, tearing them down, and leading people away captive to Christ, to obey Christ our King. J.C. Ryle writes the following about this idea. He says, The cause of truth does not need force to maintain it. False religions like Mohammedism have often been spread by the sword. False Christianity like that of the Roman church has often been enforced on men by bloody persecutions. But the real gospel of Christ requires no such aids as these. It stands by the power of the Holy Ghost. It grows by the hidden influence of the Holy Ghost on men's hearts and consciences. There is no clearer sign of a bad cause in religion than a readiness to appeal to the sword. Worldly means is a bad sign in the church. God does not use, uh, need us to use worldly ways to do heaven's work, to do God's will. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or worldly. They do not involve force or coercion. That's always the way of false religion, the kind of religion that men conceive in their own idolatrous imaginations. Now, the kingdom of Christ The kingdom of Christ always advances not by the sword, but by the sword of the Spirit, which Paul tells us is what? That we have a sword, it's just not that kind of sword. It's the word of God, Ephesians 6, verse 17. Now Mark adds a curious little kind of postscript to our text when he tells us about a young man who had been wearing uh, just a a linen outer cloth around his body. Think of it kind of like a toga, just wrap the sheet around himself kind of thing. Uh, and when this, this armed crowd tried to seize Jesus, they, they seized him. He must have been standing just close enough. Maybe he couldn't run because he was wrapped in his sheet. Let that be a lesson to you about what you wear, about girding up the loins of your mind. He didn't gird up the loins of his bed sheet. Um, and so when they tried to grab him, what happened? He pulled a Joseph. He wriggled out of the sheet and ran away naked. The second streaker that I know of in the, in the scriptures, right? 
Now, many many people have speculated about who this may have been. Uh, many many believe it's Mark himself, the writer of this gospel, and I believe that's probably true. Although you can't say, just as remember, remember the, in the Gospel of John, John doesn't tell you, "I, John," you know, what does he call himself in his gospel? The one who Jesus loved. They they they're they're almost. It's like they're too humble. They don't want to. They don't feel worthy to put their name forth. Well, I think Mark. Is kind of signing the gospel here. He's in an embarrassing way. I mean, he's admitting his own failure, just like the disciples. Only it's a more embarrassing failure. He was so scared, he ran away naked. He turned tail from from Christ uh, in his in his worst hour and ran away in fear uh, as well. Even while Jesus was going to the to the cross. Well, one last thing we can learn from our passage. There's many more things that we can learn. Is not just about the kingdom of Christ or the uh, the, the identity of Christ, but also the word of Christ. The word of Christ. Notice that Jesus tells those who were coming to arrest him that he was allowing them to do that. Why? In order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Look at verse 49. He says, Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But then he adds, But let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's a, it's a theme you're seeing throughout Mark and throughout even this chapter as well. Back in verse 21, he said the same thing, but the scriptures had to be fulfilled. In other words, the scripture has to be fulfilled, but woe to the man by whom Jesus was going to be betrayed, even though it had to happen because the scripture said it had to happen. The scriptures, especially those that which speak of the person, kingdom, and work of Christ for our salvation, the salvation of sinners, must be fulfilled, even if it takes his death, even though it took the sinless Son of God and the Lord of glory being numbered among transgressors, the Lord of Glory, treated like a common criminal, like a like a violent criminal, had to happen for the Scriptures to be fulfilled. Even though it took the incarnate Son of God humbling Himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians two eight, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. How assured should you and I be of the truthfulness of God's Word, of the Word of Christ, and especially of the promise of life and salvation in the Gospel when we, when we read these words? Not one word from God will fall to the ground. Not one. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.18? He says, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That's the King James Version of Matthew 5.18. A jot and a tittle in the Hebrew language were the smallest letter, it looks like a comma, and the smallest mark, it's a dot, in the Hebrew language. And Jesus is saying, not just a word, not just a sentence, not just the gist of a passage, not even the smallest mark of a pen. It's, you know, we have a saying, something is fulfilled to the letter. This is beyond that. Fulfilled to the dot on the I, you know, or, or the, or the crossing of a T. It's all going to come to pass. Even if it took his death on the cross, God's word was going to be fulfilled. He elsewhere says, in the, in, earlier in our, in our book, Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will what? Never, they will not pass away. You can trust in the word of God, and you can trust in Christ. Neither one will fail you. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these passages that teach us so much that we, we, we read them and we, uh, are shocked at the thought, we are horrified at the thought of your Son, the Lord of glory, our Savior and Redeemer, uh, being treated these ways 
he was treated in the way that we deserve, but he deserved none of that. But he allowed himself, submitted himself to these things for our salvation uh, because of your great love for us in him. And we give you praise for that. We can't even comprehend how great your love is towards us in Christ, that your love really is as high as the heavens are above the earth towards us, and that the forgiveness that you have have uh, given to us in Christ is really as far as the east is from the west. We give you praise for sending your only begotten Son, that he should die the death that we deserve for our sins, and that you rose him, raised him from the grave that we might know the price has been paid and that we might be justified in him. Lord, we, we just... We just humble ourselves and we give you praise and thanks. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to to better understand the identity of Christ, our Savior, your Son. We might think rightly about him, that we might think rightly about his kingdom and not seek to pursue it in worldly means and worldly ways, but that we might seek to do your will. We might seek to, to, to be a part of you building your kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, your Son, we thank you that, as the psalmist says, that uh, blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him, and we, we do just that. We come to him and, and hide ourselves in him, looking for life and forgiveness in all things, just in Christ your Son and nowhere else. And, Lord, we pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, as we've already prayed, we ask that you might make today the day of their salvation, that you might open their eyes, let them look to Christ and take refuge in him and have life and forgiveness and life eternal in his name. For it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.